0: James Smith has said that the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship is what do you want? Not what do you know, not what do you believe, but what do you want? And I want to take that question this morning and apply it to the crowds who were lining the streets on that first Palm Sunday. What did they want? What did they want when they cried Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They wanted a king. They wanted the promised Messiah. They wanted someone to come and to free them from the Roman oppressors. They wanted someone who was going to make wrongs right. They wanted their lives to be beautiful again. They wanted something glorious. What do we all want right now? We want COVID-19 to just go away. We want sick people to be made well. We wanna know that our families are going to be okay. We want life to get back to normal. We want something glorious to happen. And assuming the pandemic lifts and life gets back to normal this fall, many of us, even thousands of us, will stand in lines, dressed for the occasion, eager to enter temples all over the country, eager to cheer on our favorite teams, and then what will we want? We want to witness great athletic accomplishment. We want to see victories. Maybe we want to see something glorious. And if sports isn't your thing, you'll probably try to find it at a concert or on a hike or at your favorite restaurant. You'll try to find something good, something beautiful, something wonderful, something glorious, even. But what if all those attempts to find something glorious? as good as they are and as enjoyable as those things are, what if they're kind of like our attempts to fill ourselves eating the chips that they keep bringing us at a Mexican restaurant? They're really good, and so we keep eating them, and they keep bringing them, and we keep eating them, and they keep bringing them, and we keep eating them, but we're never quite satisfied. We never can quite get our, our fill of them. And so what if I told you that, if all, that all of our chasing after something glorious, that all those places we're trying to find it, that those things were never meant to satisfy us, but that they were simply gifts from a good king that were meant to draw our eyes to him and see him for the glorious king that he is and be moved to repent for valuing his gifts more than we valued the King himself. See what we really need in the midst of a broken world is not a temporary fleeting experience of glory. We need to see the glory of the King. And to do that, we're gonna look together at Psalm 24. Uh, Psalm 24, you should have that on your screen. This is God's word. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters, or the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we uh, pray now that you would meet with us and that you would show yourself to be the glorious great king that we need. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I really just wanna try to say two things this morning. Uh, One, I want us to think about the glory of the king And then secondly, I want us to think about how we get in to see the king. First of all, the glory of the king. Uh, Most of you have heard of the media mogul, Ted Turner. Ted Turner owns land in 10 different states. He has a herd of 51,000 bison that are spread out over 15 different ranches, and he owns around 2 million acres of land. Until 2010, he owned more land than anybody else in the United States. That honor now belongs to John Malone, the chairman of Liberty Media, who has a net worth of $9 billion and owns 2.2 million acres of land. Now that's pretty impressive. And I imagine it feels pretty glorious to to look at your land holdings and see that you own 2.2 million acres of land. But Ted Turner and John Malone are both gonna die one day and they won't have any money, and they won't have any land. The king of glory, on the other hand, owns all the land. And he always has, and he always will. Verse one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The king of glory owns Packlet, and Spartanburg, and Campcroft, and Greenville, and Atlanta, and New York City, and Alaska, and China, and Russia. He he owns all the creatures of the earth. And the fact that he owns the earth, and everything in it, means that he owns you and me as well. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. What that's saying is that you and I belong to God. He has rights over us. Why? Verse two says, he founded it upon the seas. In other words, he laid the foundations. He created the earth and everything in it. And that includes you and me. You know, there's a guy in our neighborhood who's recently built a new sidewalk and a deck and an outside workshop and another sidewalk. You, You might say he created them. He created them and so he owns them. They don't belong to me. They belong to him. But think about it, when he built those things, what did he build them after? What did he use? He used wood, he used nails, he used concrete. Did he make those things? No, he bought those at Lowe's or Home Depot and and that wood from the trees. Where did those trees come from? Who made those trees? And who made the water that he used to mix the concrete? And where did he get the power to run his tools? Well, he got it from Duke Power. Well, how did they generate it? From coal or water or natural gas? or nuclear energy, but where did that coal, or that water, or those atoms come from? Who made those? God did, and what did he make those out of? He spoke them into existence. Who owns those things? God does, and who made you? God did, and who owns you? God does, And not only does God own everything, he sustains everything. The phrase, establish it upon the rivers in verse 2, can perhaps be better translated, establishes it upon the rivers. He created and sustains the entire universe. Colossians 1, verse 17, speaking of Jesus, says, in him all things hold together. God is the owner, he is the creator, he is the sustainer. You know, I don't, I've seen different stats, um, but some have said that up to 90% of our country is currently sheltering in place because of a virus. Worldwide, billions of people are hiding from a, from a virus that we can't see except with a microscope. Does, does, does anyone else feel less self-sufficient than you did uh, a month ago? Does this does, does give us this day our daily bread seem a little bit more relevant today than it did a month ago? A little more important to, to, to pray that prayer even? And, you know, the only reason we don't all go hurling into the sun right now is not simply because there's this thing called gravitational pull that just happens to exist It's because God wills that we don't go flying into the sun. God made all things. God sustains all things. God owns all things. Do you see his glory? Do you see the glory of this king? Let me invite you just for a minute to just kind of let that, that sink in and just chew on the sweetness of that. That there is a glorious being who made all of this. Who filled the universe with beauty and wonder, with light and colors, with fireflies and stars, with beaches and mountains, with snow and rain, with elephants and koala bears, with fig trees and watermelons. And he made you and he made me in his image. And he placed us here to take care of his creation (coughs) and to enjoy it, to love and to dance and to sing and to make music, to love and to be loved, to delight and to be delighted in. And isn't that glorious? It's not all a big mistake. We're here for a reason. And even when it feels like the whole thing is spiraling out of control, he's still in control And isn't that glorious? And isn't he glorious? There's a downside to having a king. It means I'm not the king. It means you're not the king. There's a phrase you hear from time to time, my body, my choice. And the king says, no, both you and that life within you are actually my bodies. You and everyone else belongs to me. We love life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And the king says there are actually limits to that. There is an authority higher than your own. You're not autonomous. You're not free to just do whatever it is that you want to do. And if we were in our right minds, we'd realize it's good to have a good king who rules all things, And but we're not in our right minds. And so we don't realize how good that is. We pray, thy will be done, but our fingers are holding tightly that same, at the same time to my will be done. And yet even in our rebellion, even our rebellion doesn't do away with the fact that he is still king. Our rebellion, as evidenced by the fact that we are all sitting hiding in our houses right now, is a futile rebellion. The Lord is still the king. The Lord still rules all things and owns all things and sustains all things. And isn't that glorious? And isn't he glorious? There's one more thing I should mention about the king. Verse three mentions his holy place. All through the scriptures, you read that the king is holy. He's an infinite being of blazing moral purity. He's not one person in public and another person in private. He doesn't abuse his power. He's not secretly corrupt. He doesn't have mixed motives. He's just, and he's good, and he's loving. What he does is right. His judgments are fair. He will see to it that in the end, all crimes will be punished. All wrongs will be made right, and everything that's broken is going to be restored. And isn't that glorious and isn't he glorious we're not exactly sure what the backdrop for this psalm is but many commentators think this is probably an occasion when the ark of the covenant is arriving back at the gates of the city of david after israel has just won a big victory on the battlefield the ark was the golden chest that could contained the Ten Commandments. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat where the blood of animal sacrifices were sprinkled. And that Ark symbolized God's presence with his people. And so when the Ark came through the city gates, it was like God himself was coming through the city gates. And so the psalm is a celebration of God, the King of Glory, who has once again won the battle for his people. But the psalm also ask the question, can just anyone get in to see the king? Who can get in to see the king? And, uh, you know, I I read this and I picture football games that I've been to, where was this, there was this big backlog of people trying to get in, going through security, getting their bags checked, having things confiscated that you couldn't bring in. And then you got through all that and you had to show them your ticket. And only then could you get in. Well, what's required here? What's required to actually come into the presence of the king? Look in verse three and four. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Clean hands refers to our actions. As we stand trying to get in, we should be able to show that we've done what is right and what is good, that we are someone who has kept the king's laws. But it's not just the externals we need to be concerned with. We need to have a pure heart. We need to have done the right things for the right reasons. Our thoughts matter. Our inner disposition matters. Our motivations matter. We can't be someone who lifts up our soul to what is false or who lifts up our soul to worthlessness. And that word which is translated to what is false or worthlessness can also be used to refer to an idol. We can have no other gods but God. Our bottom line devotion has to be to the glorious king and to him alone. And then finally, we can't be someone who swears deceitfully. Our speech must be characterized by integrity, we shouldn't try to use our words to take advantage of other people. We're we're to love God and to love our neighbor. That's what they're checking your ticket for. That's what they're checking you for when you try to get in to see the king. Clean hands, pure heart, loves God, loves neighbor. Why such rigorous requirements? because this is the hill of the Lord. This is his holy place. He is a holy God. And if you're not holy, you cannot stand in his presence. So we have this plague right now, COVID-19, and some of you guys are on the front lines of battling this. You go into emergency rooms and hospitals, and you're around people who are sick, and you're trying your best to protect yourself as you try to offer them help, but you're trying to protect yourself with mask and face shields and gloves. And then you leave the hospital and you take all of that off and you you come home. And when you go home, you you, you strip off your clothes and you shower and, and disinfect and, and, and whatever you need to do. And maybe even some of you are, are doing all that and you're still staying in another part of the house or maybe you're in the garage or in a tent in the backyard, why? Because that house is clean and you don't wanna bring what is unclean, into the presence of your family. It doesn't belong there, because that place is sacred. You might even say that place is holy, and so is God. God is holy. Now, if anything is clear from reading the Bible and and just observing human beings, it's that we're not holy. We don't love God very well. We don't love our neighbor very well. Our hearts frequently chase after worthless things. And the word the Bible uses to talk about all this is sin. It says we're sinners. And because of our sin, our world is filled with death and decay and disease and destruction. And that creates quite a dilemma. If the only place where I can experience the true beauty and wonder, or excuse me, if, if the only place I can experience beauty and wonder and healing and forgiveness and true glory is in the presence of this great king, then I've got a problem. See, that's the only place I can go to really experience these things like they're meant to be experienced. He is the only one who can make wrongs right. He is the only one who can make crooked things straight. He is the only one who can make disease a thing of the past. He is the only one who can forgive my sins, this glorious king. And I can't even get past the gate to come into his presence and be near him. So what then? Well, I guess in the Old Testament, the Israelites heard the requirements they thought about it for a minute and they thought about God and they thought about themselves and then they threw their hands in the air and they went home. Well, that's not what happened. They came and they worshiped. How were they able to do that? Well, remember that ark with those commandments in it that we all break all the time? There was a, a mercy seat on top of that ark. And when sacrifices were offered, blood was sprinkled on the top, uh, excuse me, on that mercy seat. Uh, lambs were slain blood was sprinkled and when those sacrifices were offered it was as if those animals were bearing the weight of the sins of the people those animals were declared guilty so that the worshipers could be declared not guilty but animals can't really bear the weight of our sin. They can't really make us right with God. Hebrews 10 tells us that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to make us right with God. That sacrifices of priests, even if they're offered over and over and over and over and over again, they can never take away sin. But the blood of the son can. The blood of the son who has clean hands and a pure heart, that blood can take away sin. And so on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into town heading for the cross to shed his blood, to take away sin, to open the door into the very presence of God. The day he rode into Jerusalem was the day that rabbis say that priests would have actually been reciting Psalm 24 in the temple. Uh, listen to verse 7 again. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The priests are reciting Psalm 24. The crowds are chanting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But neither the crowds nor the priest understood that the Son of God had come to town to give up his life on the cross so that the sins of his people could be forgiven. I'm Kim, and I'm probably pronouncing that horribly wrong, but she's a grandmother in her mid-70s who lives in Cambodia. She likes to garden and spend time with her family and watch soap operas. But in the 1970s, she led a very different life. She was a senior official under Pol Pot. Her job was to, to try and find traitors to the regime and round them up and kill them. She organized prisons and used slave labor to complete massive infrastructure projects. One of the survivors of those times says that her name was known to everyone. People would be made to work all day and all night with no water. People would be killed right in front of you. She was the image of the regime's brutality. It's estimated that she supervised the deaths of 560,000 people. Sometime in the last three years, she's been converted to Christianity, or she's converted (laughs) to Christianity, and she was baptized by a pastor who was actually a slave under her oversight back in the 1970s. And this is what she said about her conversion. Jesus can save you if you're a sinner, and that is why I converted to Christianity, she explained. Only Jesus can redeem you. Only Jesus can wash your sins away. Some might argue that this is just a jailhouse conversion, and only God knows the truth of that. But I do know this. Jesus shed his blood for people like I'm Kim, so that they could enter the very presence of God. And my guess is that we all find that a little bit offensive, that it rubs all of us the wrong way a little bit. But I think if we had a clear understanding of our own hearts and the murderous nature of our own hearts and a fuller understanding of the holiness of God, we would find that glorious. We would find the fact that he forgives any of us glorious. Well, what happened with Jesus? Jesus rode into Jerusalem. He was crucified and he died. But that wasn't the end of the story because death can have no hold over a man who has clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into the very presence of God. And if you by faith, grab hold of Jesus, then death won't be able to hold you down either. I want to I want to read the last few verses of our text again, and as I do this, I want you to picture Jesus rising from the grave, victorious over death, entering the heavenly city, walking into the presence of God, and bringing you with him into a place of no more sin, and no more sickness, and no more tears, and no more death, bringing you into a place of glory. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Two questions for you this morning. Number one, do you know him? Do you know this king? Do you know this savior king? Have you received him as your savior and king? When well, you say, how do I do that? You do that by acknowledging that you've rebelled against him. You do that by laying your weapons down. And you do that by embracing him by faith. And what's faith? What does it mean to embrace Jesus by faith? This is one of my favorite definitions of faith. Faith is not a climbing of the mountain, but a ceasing to attempt it and allowing Christ to carry you up in his arms. It's when you realize I can't ascend the holy hill. I need Jesus to carry me up. And so I'm going to give up on my own works and my own righteousness. And I'm going to cast myself into the arms of Jesus and allow him to bring me into God's presence. My second question is this. If you have received Jesus as your savior and king, I want to encourage you to. I guess this isn't a question. This is more an exhortation. I want to encourage you, if you have received Jesus as your King, to remember that as you walk the dangerous streets of a sin-sick world, that the King of War, the King of Glory is a mighty warrior who fought death and defeated death, who 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 overcame the grave, and He did all of that for you. And he fights for you still. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, um, Lord Jesus, that we would remember that you are the king of glory, that you are majestic, that you are mighty, that you are loving, that you are faithful. uh, And that you, as we place our faith in you, will bring us into glory, will bring us into the very presence of the Father where we can experience glory ourselves. We pray all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.